Well, do you remember back in, in March and April when the the lockdown began and, and schools and businesses began to close down and, and we were getting these sheltering in place and emergency orders, you know, that became the norm. That's what we came used to. And and there was a message, uh, the message that was, you know, kind of blasted across the media on, on businesses, this message that we're all in this together. And, and we celebrated almost like this, the sense of these longstanding foes would come together to fight a common enemy, a common cause. And, and political commentators noticed and commented on how liberals and conservatives and other political parties would, would rally together and they would drop all their, their political attacks and, and, and they would figure out a way to work together to make it possible. And, and you know, rich and poor and urban and rural iPhone and Android users, rap and country music artists, they all came together to, to have this one common cause of, of working together. This idea that we're stronger together in unison. And began to, we began to look out for one another. We saw this in neighborhoods where, where people rediscovered the importance of community with, with your neighbors and this idea of supporting one another. The elderly were told to stay home and, and neighbors or family members would go do the grocery shopping for them just to keep them safe. Um, you know, we rediscovered the power of a phone call and how just, you know, touching in and, and connecting with someone and seeing how they're doing. And, and so for a time, it looked like COVID was going to be the reset, the reset that we so badly needed. A, a reset really that was coming at a time where, where social media and, and anger and, and attacking and hate and was just seeming to, to escalate beyond, beyond measure. And so we thought maybe this will be the time for us to remember what's important, what really matters. But it didn't really seem to be the case. That the reality is that the, the problem is deeper than just sort of the, the behaviors. Much like the proverb says, a leopard cannot, cha cannot change its spots, human nature can't be changed on its own. And so that unity that we seem to have really didn't last very long, it didn't last more than two months, and, and it didn't take long before those cracks began to show. And apparently being locked up, having nothing to do except go on social media and having all that anonymity that comes with social media wasn't a great idea. And so instead of, of putting out the fires, instead of, of turning down the heat, basically what we did is we took this pot that was on the stove and we put a lid on it. And much like if you're boiling, cooking pasta, things begin to build and they build and they build until suddenly they begin to boil over. And so that message of unity and we're all in it together was quickly forgotten and the worst of humanity began to show. And, and I don't say that just about others, I even began to see it in myself. See, one of the things I've begun to discover and, and really I think accept about myself is, is I, am a, I am a person with opinion. I have an opinion and, I, and I'm okay to share that. And I think somewhere right now, there's Greg saying amen to that if you listen really carefully. And, and I've come to learn that, that having that opinion and being an opinionated person isn't necessarily bad. It's just something that I have to be careful of. That if I use it in a, in a negative way, I can hurt some people. But if I use it in a positive way, I can fight for people. I can defend people and, and not tear them down. But to be able to offer an opinion, I've also kind of realized that you need to be informed. You can't just be spouting off whatever opinion you want. And so it is important to learn and, and to study. And so with all the important conversations that have been going on with, with race and, and the politics and capitalism and, and equality and so forth, I thought it was a good idea to 
begin to inform myself. And so I was reading articles and blogs and and watching way too many YouTube videos and listening to podcasts and and coming to understand things like, you know, what is redlining and what is uh, critical theory and and what is, you know, equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity and and all kinds of different things. And, And, Bo, I began to notice that the more I was reading, the more I was watching, that this anger and this agitation was growing. That I was, I was becoming less patient and less uh, kind towards those who had a different opinion than, than the one I was holding to. And I kind of took a step back and, and was looking at all the stuff I was watching. And, and although I was trying to watch things from, from different angles and different sides of, of the political spectrum, they both had one thing in common. And that they were designed, the articles or the, the videos, they were designed to stir up agitation. They were designed to stir up rage and anger. Because really what they were trying to do is, especially in a year of an election year in the U.S., trying to stir up this idea of mobilizing their base. And nothing mobilizes people better than anger for a lot of people. And so that sense of outrage that they were trying to stir up, I began to notice in my own soul. And so no longer are we in this together. Instead, that begins to be replaced with greater polarization greater division, greater angst, greater brawling and fighting with one another, uh, the rioting and condemnation and, and hypocrisy that we're seeing, intolerance, cancel culture. And now in this last week, we're seeing people being murdered over a mask, people being killed over masks. It's just, it's crazy. It just, it blows my mind. And, and it would be easy to say, well, these are unprecedented times. But I don't think that's actually true. I don't, I don't think that's the reality of it. Economic collapses, pandemics, rioting, bigotry, upheaval, culture wars, they've all happened before. And they're all going to happen again before Jesus comes back. See, as wise King Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Anyone familiar with history would be able to easily point to other times in history when all these things happened, either in part or even at times together. See, the reality is the chaos and the confusion that we're experiencing, this is perfect breeding ground for what the enemy wants to do. Because now what happens is the enemy hiding in plain sight can cause so much damage in the midst of that chaos and confusion. And and to be honest... What we're seeing in terms of this, this vitriol and this anger and, and this condemnation, I, we really shouldn't be surprised that we're seeing this in the world. Because quite frankly, it's what the world does. It's the world being the world. Biting and consuming is what children of, of wrath do. But the reality is we need to understand the church is not immune from this either. And that's, that's why I think what concerns me is I see the church having this level of agitation. Again, I saw it in my own self. So I'm not trying to criticize anyone. I just, I just see it happening where we begin to attack and we lose sight of, of what we're all about. And, and I think that's, that's what's so beautiful about this letter to the Ephesians that we're studying. You see, think about it. This letter was written in a time when the Roman world was, was just that. It was, Rome was the dominant nation and, and they would conquer anyone in front of them. And, and it wasn't so much that they would just take over the land and, and start collecting taxes. What they wanted to do was make everyone Roman. And so they would conquer you and they would conquer your culture. They would take away your culture and replace it with a Roman culture. 
And so it was a time of oppression. It was a time of slavery. They would, they would take these nations as slaves. Great racism. You know, to be a Greek or a Roman was, was much better than anyone else. To have that Roman citizenship. Xenophobia, xenophobia and anger and mistrust. Blaming, infighting, elitism, condemnation, slander. Does any of that sound familiar? What was happening in the first century is now happening here in the 21st century. And so we have this letter written by a Jew, mainly about a Jew being Jesus Christ, written to a group of people that is an eclectic mixture of Jew and Gentile, who really at any moment, all things could just break out in terror. I mean, think about it. In, in, when Paul wrote this letter in, in less than 10 years, Rome comes in and destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple. They're, they're less than 200 years away from the Maccabees when there was a Jewish revolt and uprising against the Roman um, uh, occupiers. And so this letter, although it's written you know, 2,000 years ago, <clears throat> has great value and great insight for where we are today. Because again, nothing is new under the sun. <clears throat> and so what Paul's writing to the church of, of Ephesus Keep in mind, he's also writing to you and I today in this church here, in churches here in Kitchener and really around the world. So let's read our passage this morning that we're going to study. We're going to, we're going to focus on, we're going to read verses 1 to 6, but we're really going to focus on verse, verse 3 in particular. So in verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you, invite you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for, love, for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all in all. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> we're, we're, we're so glad to know that you're with us and that we can, we can trust you to speak to us this morning, to help us to understand what it is that we have and, and why it's so important that we have this idea of, of being in it together as a church and how we can experience that, and how we can encourage one another. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me this morning, and, and that what would be shared, what would be offered, would be a message of hope, a message of encouragement. We're looking forward to what you're going to do. In your name we pray, amen. So we're going to talk about community and, and unity this morning, and and. And this idea of community within church is, is not just a, a recommended set suggestion. It's not like, you know, don't cook bacon naked. That's just not a good idea. This is something bigger than that. It, it's, it's really, it's, it's the kind of counsel, the instructions that is required, especially in this, this dark world in order for us to survive. And, and it really, it should be an obvious statement for all of us that it, it shouldn't require explanation, except it does. It absolutely does, because every one of us, and, and I, again, I include myself in that list, every one of us, we struggle to experience this community. And we struggle to some degree, and, and I totally understand it. 
Because the reality of, of it is this lone wolf Christianity will appeal to us. It will sound so good because every one of us can relate to either has a story or 20 stories of where people in the church have heard us. Where we've we faced neglect, we faced rejection, we faced hurt, we've been abused by those in the church. And the old saying, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And so we get this idea that it's safer to be alone. It's safer to be on our own. And so we we begin to pull away from others. We keep others at a safe distance. And so that we feel like we're more protected, that we're not going to get hurt. But the reality is, instead of being safe, we actually become more exposed. Let me illustrate to this to you with a video from a from a documentary from BBC. They 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 watched this. They recorded a bunch of lions in the in the wild, and and there's one lion in particular here. And this lion, his name was Red. You know, we could call him Simba, really, but this lion, Red, he's he's wandered beyond his boundaries. He's wandered beyond what's safe. And now this pack of twenty hyenas have have kind of discovered what they want for dinner tonight. And so this. This hyenas begin to surround him. And although this one lion in particular, he's way more powerful than the pack of hyenas. The reality is, he's not more powerful than all 20 of them. You could take down one, two, five, ten, maybe, maybe even 15, but, but 20, they're too big for him. And so they're going to surround him. And they're going to begin to harass him. You can, you can hear their, the sound of the hyenas, this, this mocking, this taunting. And it's really what, what the enemy begins to do. They're not going to out, out try to attack. What they're going to try to do is wear him down. Nipping at him and clawing at him and biting at him and, and just exhausting him. And the lion knows he's in trouble. You can imagine the adrenaline and the panic he has, but he can't run away can't escape all this. Again, that's what our enemy's doing. He's got us surrounded when we're, we isolate ourselves. We're all alone. And, and he's just biting at us. He's nipping at us. He's wearing us down. We're getting exhausted. And then a friend comes along. And that friend shows up. And now the, the two of them are more powerful than this pack of hyenas and they can chase them off and they can have freedom now and be safe. And that's what community is meant to be. The sense of community is meant to protect us, uh, one another. It's, it's meant to make sure that we're, we're gonna be safe. And although we might have some of the, the wounds and the scars from the enemy's attacks, we're alive. This, this, I think, is what's so perfectly described by King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, 9 to 12. He writes here, two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three, of three strands, is not quickly torn apart. You see, the reality is that's, that's, the, that's the importance of community. That's, that's what every one of us is, is, is requiring. And I think that cord of three, that's, that's God, that's Jesus. 
together with you and me, and we can't be overcome. See, the problem we have to understand is, is although we've all experienced hurt and pain in community, the problem is not community. The problem is bad community. And to jettison and to isolate and to get rid of, of community and withdraw is, is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And so what we want to do is we want to discover, well, what's bad community and avoid that, but then what's good community? And, and then run to that and experience that. And what this passage, I think what Paul's saying is really is, is to fight for it, to fight for that community. And a good, healthy community will always require unity. And so that's the invitation. So let's understand first what unity is not. The first thing is, is unity is, is not this idea that we're all organized under one, under one tent, under one uh, denomination or one leadership here on earth. You see that in the Catholic Church, where every, every Roman Catholic Church is all organized, and then eventually at the top, you've got the bishops and the cardinals, and then finally you get the pope. And, and that's not what the church is meant to be. We're not meant to have one human or a group of human leaders overseeing the entire church here on earth. It's too much power. It's too much responsibility for one man or one small group of people. So that's not what we're talking about, where we all have to come together in, in this one denomination, this one group. And so there's one church, the universal church, but we're not all organized under one umbrella. We can, we can operate in unique areas, which leads to the next thing unity is not. Unity doesn't require that we agree on everything. Sure, there are critical things about our faith that are important, what some have called the essentials of our faith. And that, that centers around who Jesus is that he's the son of God, that he came as a man, that he, that he died on the cross in order for you and us to be saved and saved by grace through faith alone. That's, those are what we might refer to essentials of our faith. But there are so many other aspects that, that are important but aren't really essential. You know, what you believe in terms of a, a pre-tribulation or a mid-tribulation or a post-tribulation of when Jesus comes back. Does he come back at the end, the middle, or the, or the uh, beginning of that? You know, those things are important, but not critical. They're, they're interesting. They're, they're good to study, but not truly vital. There are so many other aspects, that, again, that we can go in talking about that. And, and so it's not about the doctrine that we all have to agree on. Now, please understand, that doesn't mean that we throw all doctrine overboard, especially in an effort to create unity. Because that's what I see happening is where, where nothing matters anymore. We just throw it all overboard in order to just kind of stand together. But as the old saying says, you know, if you, if you stand for nothing, you will fall for everything. And so it is important to know what you stand for. It is important to know what you believe. But it comes down to understanding what does Father's Word teach us. And here's where it's important to recognize and give permission that, that maybe Father's Word in some areas is not as clear as we want it to be or as we think it is. And there might be other opportunities to, or other interpretations of what Father's Word is saying. Again, that doesn't give you license to throw everything out and make everything open to what you want Father's Word to say because there are some things that are pretty clear and pretty absolute because truth is absolute at points. Father's Word in particular is absolute, but your interpretation may not be. And so giving permission to understand that. And so we can stand side by side even though we disagree on some doctrine, and that's okay. Which leads us to the third part is... Unity does not require uniformity. It doesn't mean that we all think the same. It doesn't mean that we all act the same. 
And that's wonderful. You can have churches that are extremely charismatic and extremely full of energy and, and running and jumping and dancing. And that's great. That's wonderful. And then you can have other churches where maybe the people are more reserved and more conservative. And that's wonderful too. Some churches have loud music. Some churches have quieter music. Some churches have, have music, you know, that involves more contemporary style. And, and, and some have rap music even. And others, they're more singing the hymns. And just, you know, the church organ and the piano. Whatever you, you want to do, that's wonderful. We don't have to all be the same. There's no one right way to worship. It doesn't require uniformity. And so we can experience different personalities because God's made us different, right? The key here is to understand that, that we're all part of one body, but we're not all an ear. We're not all a hand. We're not all an elbow. We're all different parts of the body, but we all come together to make one, one church. So in summary, what is it not? Unity is not referring to how we're organized. It doesn't refer to having complete doctrine and thought all in, in, in together, believing the same thing. And it doesn't require all of us to act together. I mean, think about it. What I'm describing in that case would be iPhone users, right? They're so, so conditioned to act one way. That's not the church. That's not the church. Clearly not. I'm kidding, by the way. Uh, what's the basis of our unity then? Well, this is what I think Paul was talking about. The basis of our unity is this bond of peace that we have. And so really what unity is basically is saying is you and I, we get to stand together. We get to stand as one, shoulder to shoulder, side by side. And, and I love how this word bond that Paul uses in the Greek is actually the word for ligament. <clears throat> So you think about what does a ligament do in the human body, right? You've got the, the bones, and the bones is the, the skeleton or the structure. It, it allows you and I to, to stand up. But then you've got the muscles, and the muscles allows the structure to move around and be dynamic. And what holds all of that together, the muscles and those bones together, that's the ligaments. And, and that's what Paul's talking about here is that <clears throat> what holds you, <clears throat> you and I together, all the different parts of our body together is this bond of peace that we have. And so this peace, this peace refers to this idea that there's no more fighting between groups, no more fighting between different people. And oh man, like what an important message, especially for today, right? We see all this, this identity politics going on, right? Where, where it's being really played at a frenzied pace, where one group is being played off another group. White versus black, black versus indigenous, indigenous versus Asian. You know, we've got men versus women, old versus young. Um, you know, politics, you know, we see conservative versus liberal. And we have all these different groups being played off one another. All just trying to cause division in order to gain power and control. But what's beautiful about Jesus and what he's done is he's removed the division. He's taken it away. Remember what we, we studied when we were back in Ephesians 2, he talked about the division being this law. The law being all about your performance, how you act and what you do. That's going to determine whether you fit and whether you belong or not. And we saw it, he's taken it away, he's abolished it. Let's read the passage in Ephesians 2 verses 13 to 16. Paul, he says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's talking about the Gentiles there who didn't have the law. You've been brought together, brought near. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace. He's the source of our peace, 
who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh, abolishing in his body, the enmity, the division. What was it? It was the law of the commandments, this idea of performing. This law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in, that in himself, he, Jesus, might make the two into one new man. Thus, he established peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. For by it, having put to death the enmity. What that means for us is that, that he's made all things equal in Christ. That, that you and I were all the same value. And, and really, you think about it, racism and sexism and, <clears throat> and really every kind of ism all comes down to a question of equality. Do you view another person as equal? And that's what we're seeing right now is, is there are a lot of people who don't. There are white people who view black people as less than. There are black people who view white people as less than. There are men who view women less than and women who view men less than. You're seeing conservatives versus liberals and liberals versus conservatives. We all have this idea that, that those who are a little bit different are less than. But what's so beautiful about what Jesus has done is, is he's removed that division and that we're equal. In fact, even with unbelievers, although they're not part of the family, they're still of equal value and worth because Jesus died for them too. They, they haven't accepted the gift and they're not in the family, but, but they're not any less loved or accepted by God. They may not have that approval and a righteousness because they've rejected it, but they're still loved. And, and so this sense of equality and, and do I view another person as equal to me? Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, I can do that. As Paul says in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither male nor free. Slave, uh, slave, sorry, male nor female, slave nor free. All are one. All are equal in Christ Jesus. And so his work on the cross, that's the source of our unity. That's what's so important that you, need, you and I need to understand. It's not about our performance. It's not what we believe. It's not what we like and, and how we act. It's Jesus on the cross. And so this allows for true diversity. You know, right now we say, you know, diversity is our strength. But the reality is, diversity is our strength as long as we all agree. But in the church, you don't have to all agree. We can have diversity of thought. We can have diversity of opinion. We can have diversity of preference. We can have diversity of style. We're all united in Christ because what he has done. See, look what Ephesians 4 and verse 3 tells us. It says, Paul says here, being diligent, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of Christ. <clears throat> Notice that he's not telling us to create this, this unity. We don't need to drum it up. We don't need to go in and fight to make it happen. No, no, no. That was, that was God's job. That's what we saw in Ephesians 2, right? He made it happen. He's made this because he's our peace. Instead, the instruction for you and I is to preserve it, to, to keep it together, to protect this unity. And, and the word preserve means to, to guard, to fight for, to, to watch out for, to care, to keep. And, and there's an urgency here. When he says being diligent, he's, he's saying make haste, 
Do it right now. Make it important. Make it critical. That, that there's a vitalness to it. That you just don't, it's just not going to happen on its own. You actually have to go and fight for it. Put effort to preserve it. And the reason is because this unity is going to be attacked. This unity is going to be attacked in order that we're going to be isolated and withdrawn. Again, you think about the animal kingdom. You know, those hyenas would never have gone have attacked that lion if he was with his pride. But maybe they were watching and waiting for, for that lion, red in this case here, to be pulled away, to be isolated, so that now the pack can begin to attack. And so that's what our enemy is going to do. He's going to cause fractures, division, um, splits, denominational fighting, infighting with, between churches or maybe within the church or maybe within families. Because now that we isolate and pull ourselves away and become that lone wolf Christianity, just me and God, that's all I need, now he can begin to attack. And now we're going to be overta overtaken and beaten down by our enemy. So how is he going to do this? Well, I think the first thing he's going to begin to do is he's going to begin to ferment hurt and bitterness. This, this hurt and bitterness, you know, the sense of being disappointed by others. And the reality is it's easy to do because he's got lots of material to work with, right? He's, he's got the, the, the hurts from other people, our family members, other Christians, and, and can say, look what they did. How dare they do that to me? And, and so we feel cheated, we feel hurt by them, and, and we just become obsessed with that hurt and that anger. And so that bitterness, what it begins to do is it begins to ferment a mistrust towards other people. Again, you know, it, it, they're just going to get me. They're going to hurt me again. And so I begin to question their motives. I question their intentions. I question even when they're truly authentic. In the sense that even now when they, when they try to show love and they, sh they try to, to be kind towards me, no, I don't believe it. No, 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 I'm on to you. No, no, I know you're just trying to play me. You're, you're, not, you're not being sincere when you're, when you're encouraging me and loving me. And so instead of receiving it, I just put it to the side because I got this mistrust. I don't trust you. And that mistrust doesn't just extend to my family and my friends and the people in my church and, and maybe even strangers. It, it extends more dramatically, more devastating to mistrusting Jesus. That, that I begin to question either even God's motives towards me. I question, is God really good? Is, is he good towards me? Will he, really, will he really come through to me? Will he really be there for me? And is he really going to be enough? Or... Or is he just waiting, just waiting for that disaster to hit, for that illness to come, that loss of job, that loss of a, of a loved one, some, some difficult experience. He, you know, it's coming. It's just a matter of time. And when it does, is he going to be there? Or will I, will I get chewed up and spit out in the wake of all that? And so we have, we've questioned that. We even question, is he really pleased with me? Again, all of that being fermented by the voice of the enemy, stirring up all his trouble. And, and then what it does, it begins to, to incite this idea that your performance determines your acceptance. What I see this all the time in counseling, we call it performance-based acceptance. And you see it within any organization, any kind of group. It could be in families, it could be at work. Often we see it in churches. But really what happens is you're being judged by your performance. Do you struggle with this sin? 
Are, are you speaking the right language? Are you acting the right way? Are you, are you behaving in the right manner? Do you appear to be spiritual or not? Are you praying right? And so what ends up happening is this, this performance-based acceptance is just another form of legalism. And it may include the Ten Commandments, or it may include a whole new set of commandments based on your family of origin or your own uh, ideas or maybe the church that, that you're a part of. And, and they place these concepts upon you. And so I need to perform. I need to, I need to work. I need to struggle. And, and I need to do better because I'm, I'm blowing it. And so I'm only as good as my performance is. And so we're, we're struggling to, to fit in and be accepted, which leads to shame. Oh, this, this shame, you know, I, th- this belief that I'm, I'm fundamentally flawed and broken. Shame, I really believe, impacts all of us to, to varying degrees. There are some who struggle with shame less and others who struggle with it more. But it's all there. And we begin to question ourselves. Is it okay to reach out? Is it okay to say this? <clears throat> Am I safe with these people? Is it okay to struggle? Is it okay to be tired and overwhelmed? Is it okay to fail? And the answer with shame is no, not really. You see, if they knew your, your perceived flaws and all your shortcomings and all your struggles, if they knew about the sins that you, you keep giving into, they knew about the thoughts that run through your mind, if, if they knew what you plan on doing, what you've already given yourself permission to do later on today, if they knew that about you, they knew how, how you felt isolated and alone. If they really knew you. They wouldn't want to have anything to do with you. And they would reject you, and you'd be even more alone. So what we do now is we pull away. And that isolation and that withdrawal, because it's better that you don't find out. It's better that you don't see me. Maybe, maybe you can still see me, but from a distance. Because if you saw me up close... If you saw all my flaws and shortcomings, no, 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 I, I can't let you get too close. And so I pull away and I play it safe. Or maybe you go the other way and maybe as a result of that performing and as a result of that shame over trying to comment, you become pride and arrogant. And you begin to condemn those around you because you're able to play the game better than others. And, and so because you're more successful and you're better at it, you look down on others. That sense of self-righteousness, that sense of judging, and you begin to attack and tear down others. And so that criticism, that, that fighting, and that, that cruelty, and it just begins to tear apart this unity. It tears apart the group. And, and what ends up happening is, is we think the other person is our enemy. Please understand Our enemy is not another person. Our enemy are not people. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, and when we get there in about three years, I'm kidding, our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is is the flesh. It's, It's Satan. It's the world system. It's not people. And those things are attacking us. Those things are fighting with us. But but that's not what we're up against. Let me give you an illustration of how often I see this play out. I see it in marriages all the time, where you have these two people who are individuals and they decide to get married. They, they enter into a covenant with one another and, and two become one, right? Isn't that, isn't that what we say about marriage? Where man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh, one being. 
And, and so now they don't lose their individuality here, right? I mean, again, they don't have to become uniform where they all think the same and act the same. You got a husband and wife, two individuals, two different personalities, but united as one, operating as one, hopefully. But that's not always what begins to happen, right? And I see it all the time in marriage counseling because what ends up happening is that there's some hurt and there's some bitterness. There's some shame and some, some questioning, some, you know, some of the past hurts and baggage begins to get resurfaced. And so what begins to happen is now is we begin to pull away from each other in our marriage. We begin to mistrust and question and, and, and get, get upset and frustrated with the other person. And then we begin to see the worst in the other person. We see their flaws and their shortcomings, and we, we become critical and judgmental of theirs, all the while excusing and justifying and dismissing our own. Sure, sure, we're immature and we're struggling, but we have permission to be immature and struggle. But the other person, no, the other person is just mean and cruel. They're just out to get me, and so we blame and we attack and we tear down. And this is the moment where a lot of people come into my office for counseling. And like, like Galatians says, you know, be careful when you bite and, and, and attack and devour one another. Because if, if you're not careful, you will consume one another. You'll eat one another alive. And we do that in our marriages. We do that within the church. Not just the local church that you're part of, maybe, but just the church in general. And the world sees that and thinks, why would I want to be a part of that? So what do we do? We need to fight for. We need to protect this bond of unity. Again, this, this bond of unity that we've been given, the sense of all equal and all secure and all loved in Jesus Christ through the new covenant. What it does, if we can experience that unity, this is what's so beautiful. Listen to this. We get to experience, we get to, to build up this community of grace, this community of, of love and acceptance towards one another. And and that's really why New Life Fellowship exists. It really does. When we got together as, as, a, as a group of people and we thought, hey, let's, I, I think God's leading us to plant this church. You know, it wasn't to, to separate and isolate ourselves from another church. We, we loved the Lower Road that, that planted us. We were excited about Lower Road, but we felt this desire that God wanted us to create something here in Kitchener. And, and what we got together, we said, well, what do we want to do? What's the culture? What is it we want to feel like? And we, we all agreed. We wanted to create a culture. We wanted to create a place where the, the new life, where, where the, the life and the power and, and the, the, the beauty of what Jesus has done through the new covenant would be taught and, and teached, but would also allow us to experience a community of grace community where we're ex expressing and sharing the practical aspect of the new covenant with one another. And, and so that's what we're wanting to do. And, and so how do we build? How do we protect? How do we fight for this community of grace? Well, the first thing is we have to understand it all starts with an attitude, right? That's what we saw last week where we talked about what the attitude is that we need for one another. So, so let me look at, we read it earlier, but let me read it again. Ephesians 1, uh, 4, verses 1 to 3. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You've been made righteous, you've made saints, you're new creations. Now live that way. Not to become that way, but because of who you are. And, and with all humility and gentleness, and with patience, 
showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's our attitude. Humility, you know, it talks about understanding who you are and others, who, where they're at, and that Jesus has done it all. It wasn't based on what you've done. With, with gentleness, right? And we saw gentleness as meekness, which, which is not weak. No, no, it's strength under control. Patience, sense of long-suffering. We're showing tolerance and love towards other people. You know, that understanding, compassion, and kindness, all of that, now we get to protect our unity by standing shoulder to shoulder, side by side, through thick and thin. When all the attacks come, we get to stand by you and love you. So here's what I think standing by you looks like. Unity, standing with you, says that I'm going to offer you protection. I'm going to offer you a place where you have permission to be yourself. You have a permission to be a work in progress wherever you are in your journey. Again, every one of us is immature still. We're, we're growing in our maturity. We're, we're, we're moving towards experiencing all that we already possess. But no one's there. No one's fully arrived. I mean, even Apostle Paul talked about that in Philippians 3, that he's, he's moving towards that. He's pressing on towards that. And so that's true about Paul. It's, tr it's true about you and I. And so you have permission to be that work in progress. And, and, and we get to accept you right where you're at. In fact, we get to walk alongside you as you get to walk alongside us and me in particular as we grow in that maturity. Which means you're free to struggle. You're free to have a place of struggles. You're, you're even free to sin. Please understand that. Now, we don't want you to sin because all sin does is it leads to death. It leads to misery and, and guilt and condemnation from the enemy and, and, and just feeling weak and tired. And so it's not an endorsement to sin. That just hurts you and those around you. Instead, we're not going to condemn you and beat you up if you sin. You see, there's a difference between struggling with your sin and not struggling with your sin. And, and if you don't struggle with your sin, if you just give in to it and say, well, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm just going to continue down this path of sin and you're just going to have to deal with it. You know, I'm going I'm to live in a way that's contrary to Father's word. There's going to be issues. And we're going to confront you on that, but in love. We're going to confront you because love says in doing this, you're going to hurt yourself and those around you. But if you're struggling with your sin, brother, sister, please understand. We'll struggle with you. And it's okay. We'll sit with you in all that. And it's okay. Because what we get to do is we get to offer you support. We get to care for you. We get to protect you when you're attacked. You see, when the enemy comes at you and, and throws all that at you and beats you up, we get to be there and say, listen, let's come back to Jesus. This is who you are. This is what's truth. We can help you decipher and discern what is Jesus saying and what's the flesh saying. Because the flesh is going to deceive you and I. It's going to try to justify certain sins and certain behaviors. It's going to try to justify why you should pull away, why you should mistreat that person, why you should not behave in this way. And we get to encourage you and say, no, listen, this is what's real and this is what's true. Let me pray for you. Let me just sit with you and listen to you. And, and you see, that's what's so beautiful because our primary goal is not to fix you. 
Ah, oh, it's so beautiful. Because the reality is no one in the church, no one in Christ needs to be fixed. Isn't that beautiful? You've already been fixed. That was what the cross was all about. Again, we're not being fixed anymore. That's what Jesus done. We're growing in our maturity. And so rather than, than uh, my job being, okay, I got to fix you and, and get you acting right. No, no, my goal is to know you in order that I can love you better. And, and love's, love's not a feeling, love's an action. And to know you means I get to listen. I get to stand with you. And sometimes I'll just sit down with you. Maybe, maybe you're so tired from the fight and the struggle that you're just so exhausted, you just collapse on the ground. That's okay. I'll sit with you. We don't have to go any further. Not until you're ready. And when you're ready, we'll stand up together. And arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder. Sometimes maybe arm over a shoulder. We get to carry one another. We get to support one another. And in doing so, we're experiencing, we're protecting, we're, we're, we're fighting for that unity side by side. But maybe the best way, the best way to experience that unity is affirmation. That's why I saved it for last. Affirmation, affirming one another. Man, it's so powerful. It's so big. But it's also, it's probably the hardest thing to receive. It's the hardest thing to trust. You see, when, when, I, when it happens and... I've experienced this and I've seen others experience it the same way is, is when, when someone begins to affirm the other person, you start, you start to see shame rise up. You see it in their eyes. Their eyes start darting away and they start getting real, real weird. Palms get sweaty. They start to pull back a little bit because shame is telling them, this ain't true. You can't, you can't accept this. This, this. If they knew, if they knew about this over here, they wouldn't be saying this. And people start to get real nervous, real jittery. They start, they start thinking about how do I get out of here? How, where's the exit plan? I got to go. Or maybe I just, if I just tune it out and I go to my safe place in my mind, I don't have to listen to this affirmation anymore. Because it's so powerful. Because it's attacking that voice of shame that's trying to, to take away and destroy our unity. Destroy our togetherness. See, what affirmation is doing, it's reminding the other person who they are. It's, it's allowing you to, to encourage that person, to, to build them up when the enemy's been tearing them down. It allows them to be reminded about what Jesus has done in their heart. It reminds them of the acceptance and the encouragement that they already have. I wish right now, I so badly wish right now that we were all together in a group. Because right now, if we were all together in a group, I could, I could go find Greg Balfour. And in this moment, I could, I could look at him and, and see his face and stare into his eyes and tell him how much, how much I love this man. I'm proud of him. And to watch what Father's been doing in his, in his heart and his life, to see the growth and the maturity in this guy since I got to know him. To, to see and to encourage him that there is a, a warrior within him, a, a man who wants to fight for his marriage, a f man who wants to fight for his family, a man who has a deep desire to be a godly man, to, to express to his wife and his kids who Jesus is to them, a, a, a man who, who is willing to take on a challenge, 
a man who's got great humor, great fun, great excitement, a man that every time I see, I get excited about. I, mean, I remember family nights. I just would love just to go and throw the ball around with Greg because it was just him and I hanging out. That's affirmation. And, and I could have done it with Lori. And I could have told Lori about how, how impressed I am with all that she's been through and you know, her, her family upbringing and, and her marriage and, and her kid, her son right now going through so much and how it's so hard, but, but to encourage her and let her know that Jesus is with her and he's given her everything she needs right now to trust Jesus. And right where she is, is right where she's supposed to be. And that that voice of condemnation, she doesn't need to listen to. She's loved and she's accepted. Oh, to, to be able to have Lori right here, be able to say that to her. It would have been amazing. But let me challenge you. Let me challenge you right now to maybe, maybe as soon as we're done here or maybe later on today, or sometime this week, or all of the above, pick someone. Pick someone in your family, your wife, your, your husband, a, a child, maybe a friend, a coworker. Pick someone, and look them in the eyes, and affirm them. It, personally, sometimes it's fun because you watch them squirm a little bit. I, I, I will admit, I, I do enjoy that a little bit, maybe a bit too much. But, but if you go on a little bit, they begin to settle in. And you can almost see that stress and that anxiety just begin to lift. They let it in. And they can rest. Because they know who they are now. We've done this in the Gilbert household many times when, when, when everyone's getting all squirrely with one another. We're just biting and attacking and, and attacking everyone and we'll just be around the dinner table and we'll just say, okay, stop everyone. Everyone say something nice about someone else. Maybe to your left, or to your right, or just pick someone. Just encourage one another. And at first, you know, we got little kids and they're making fun of it and they make jokes of it. But then as it gets going and it gets to the older ones and then to mama and daddy, we just begin to see everything change in the family. Because we've gotten our eyes off of what the flesh has been saying to us and eyes back onto what Jesus is saying. And we're affirming one another. Let me pray. Father, I love the fact that you and I are united, that I'm united to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but you've united me to a great family, a family that includes New Life Fellowship, a family that includes our, our parent church of Laurel Road, a family that includes every church, every believer across the universe, across time, that I'm united to the Apostle Paul, that I'm united, united to the Apostle Peter. I'm united to, to my friends, John Lynch and Frank Friedman, that I'm united to all these great men and women of God. You made that happen. So thank you for that. Now, Father, will you show us how to fight for it? How you want to protect it and keep it united from when the enemy attacks it. Because together, together we're invincible. Together, gates of hell cannot stand. And so encourage us, Father. Thank you for what you've done. In your name we pray. Amen. 
as I close, let me, let me leave you with this. You know, again, this, this group that we launched, New Life Fellowship, you know, again, we spent a lot of time thinking about what we wanted to be. We, again, we wanted to be a place where people experience this grace, experience this, this community. And, and my job, along with really all the elders, it's our job not just to teach it, but to help people experience it. And so we do that through relationships. We do that with, with creating the friendships that we, we have. And, and I wish... I wish I could do that with every single person that would call New Life Fellowship their home church. I really do. I, I really wish I could, but I can't. If I were to try, I'd be spread so thin that I'd be no good to anyone. And, and so what I've come to see is it's not my job to be that to everyone, but I can be it to some. And it's not me trying to pick favorites or anything like that. It's just the ones that God has, <clears throat> has united me in, in a particular relationship with. But my hope is then those people can take it to other people. And those people can take it out to other people. And so not only is it spread across New Life Fellowship, but it spreads to outside New Life Fellowship. It spreads to the world. And so it's sort of like dropping a, a, not just a pebble, not just a rock, not just a boulder, but a nuclear bomb into an ocean. And the, the ripple and the waves and the tsunami effect that can happen. That's what God's wanting to do. That's what you and I can do. And so this, this protection of unity is not a spectator sport. It's a participator sport. We're all on the field together. And you, me, trusting in Jesus, get to express that to one another. So again, I challenge you to go and share this with people today, this week, and watch what God does. If you need prayer, by all means, reach out to us as elders. Do it through the website. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to support you, especially in this difficult time. But remember most of all, who you are in Jesus and who Jesus is in you. You're loved. Have a great day.